Welcome to the vaccination station. My name is Dave, and today I'm speaking with Debbie Moore Black. Welcome to the show. Thank you, sir. Ha- happy to be here, and thank you for the invitation. My pleasure. Debbie, let's start by getting to know you. Tell me three things about yourself that you think the audience would find interesting. I am 66 years old. I'm almost ready to retire, but I'm still actively employed at the hospital. I have been an ICU nurse for over 33 years, recently ventured off to um, behavioral health intensive management, which is for the high schizophrenics and psychotics, thinking that job might be easier for me, but it's apples and oranges comparing that. Uh, Also, I'm a um, mother of three wonderful children, all college educated, all married happily, and I have two gorgeous granddaughters. I also write a Facebook blog called Do Not Resuscitate, and I have a website by that name also. And uh, if you look up Kevin MD with my name attached, you'll see all of my stories. My future is that I would like to put all these stories into a book one day. And it's stories of critical care nursing, trials, tribulations, uh, you know, celebrations and tragedies of critical care nursing. And, And I touch on a lot of situations and do not resuscitate is the title. And that means, you know, bringing back to life. But I also write about addictions and domestic violence, people who should die peacefully instead of being on a ventilator with CPR and hearing their ribs crack and then dying anyway. So I, so it means, you know, to, to not bring back to life in those situations, I would like to not. So it's, so it's really a metaphor for the stories that I write. So um, I love writing my stories and, you know, I have to somewhat fictionalize them because of the HIPAA, you know, regulations. And so, but they're based on true facts and I, I do it to help educate people and to form camaraderie with fellow nurses also and, and healthcare professionals. That's really terrific. And yes, I, I must say, do not resuscitate. Sounds like a, a pretty grim title for a blog. Um, right. <laughs> but from what you've just said, I, I understand where you're coming from. There comes a point where you have to make a decision between quality of life and mm-hmm. the prospect of, of actually letting someone go. Because it's one thing to say we can keep someone alive the question then becomes at at a certain point, should we continue to keep them alive? Because what is the point of keeping them alive beyond this stage? And if the quality of life is not there, then the point of keeping them alive seems to be moot. Yeah. So do not resuscitate. I understand is a, is a standard term in in the hospital and, and it refers to a patient who, when they, when they expire, the instruction is to let them go and that you've been given permission from either the patient while they were still lucid or, or their family, whatever representative, representative right. is, is speaking for them. And that, of course, becomes something which plays into the euthanasia debate, of course, which is all about the weighing up the balance, the, the right to life, the right to death and quality of life. 
I haven't really followed that debate in in your country, but in Australia, it's been an ongoing debate for a long time. And these days, I think there's actually much more support today for euthanasia than there was. And I would expect to see in the next 10, 15 years, probably some state-based legislation where euthanasia becomes legalized. Because I think we've had a chance to see how it's been done in other countries overseas. Say, I think, I think Belgium, for example, and the Netherlands both offer euthanasia. And we've had an opportunity to see how different legis- legislation could be put into practice to make it work in a, in a sensible and ethical way. So we've got good practical examples. But yeah, it, it is a really difficult thing because if you're an ICU nurse, for example, you've got someone's life in your hands every day as, as part of your job it must be very difficult to turn around and say, well, at this point now I have to switch the machines off. I mean, what goes through your mind when the family or legal representative or something comes and says to you, this is it beyond this point, do not resuscitate. What is that like to deal with? Well, you know, for, for 33 years in intensive care nursing, um, I felt like I was purposeful helping people to survive their very bad diseases or organ failure and seeing them, you know, getting them better, leading a pr- productive life again. But as the years went on with the added addition of modern technology and ventilators and chest tubes and dialysis and all of these other extra components added to the intensive care patient, you know, I started to see a downward decline. Older patients coming in with a do not resuscitate document and and the family members would say, resend their DNR, do everything. And I've written about that too. And that actually is the sad thing for me because these are patients who are end-stage multi-system organ failure patients, which means there is no hope for them. There is, there is no miracle. The, the family members are rationalizing, they're denying, they're in denial, they're waiting for a miracle. And what it means is keeping these people on a ventilator and doing CPR on them and uh, pounding their chest and hearing and their ribs crack, and then they get pneumonia, and, and then they die anyway. And, and I know that there's a more peaceful way to die, like back in the day when grandma died in the little log cabin with the family surrounded by her, but, but no longer. Now we're, they're rescinding those DNRs, and people are not dying peacefully anymore. I mean, we do everything possible. I'm not, I'm not necessarily supporting euthanasia. I'm, I'm supporting a peaceful death where you're not going to be restrained to the bed, you know, put on vasopressor drips, paralytics to knock you out, to bring you back and forth into a coma. I mean, it's, it's brutal. And, and that is one big reason why I had to finally leave ICU just a few years ago, because I could, morally, I could not handle people keeping people alive who no longer had a productive life. I mean, they were really a vegetable. They were, you know, some of them were, we, we had a 92 year old man who had brainstem involvement in a fetal position and his daughter forced us to do CPR. I mean, it was brutal. And it's like, so, so he died anyway. And it's like, did you really want to brutalize your father at 92? I mean, the, I, I faced so many, I mean, and I went into the meetings with the doctors and the family saying, 
we are not, this is futile. We're, we're not able to do anything else, which I think is practical knowledge, because like I said, these people are multi-system failure patients that are not going to be revived. It's just a long-term ventilator until they, they can't do it anymore. And so, so that's their loved one on a ventilator. And then, and then when they die, there's no family members to be present with them. The ones with the super big mouths that say do everything and, and they're nowhere to be found. And it's the nurse in the end holding their hand as they die so so i'm an advocate for a peaceful death when the inevitable is there i think that's a, a really important point because it's as, as i mentioned before it's about quality of life for um you know on the side of keeping people alive but you've got to determine in what state will be the, they be alive how will right. they be experiencing that life and then uh, above all, I think there's also the question of human dignity and, and independence. Will they be able to have what, what degree of independence will they be able to have? What degree of dignity will they, they have? Can we allow them at least the, the dignity of the final decision to let them go and let them make that decision or someone they love and trust to make that decision for them? And a dignified exit is surely preferable to an undignified slow death in uh, appalling conditions so I, I think that that has to come into it at some point otherwise as you say you're, you're simply pushing the body and pushing the body and effectively torturing it just for the right. sake of being able to say well we kept them alive but for right. what purpose right and there there are a lot of purposes guilt having seen mama or Papa in a while, there's the rationalization of they're going to live forever, the denial. There's also sometimes a paycheck. So where did you study and what are your qualifications? Um, I studied, uh, I have a associate degree in nursing. I do not have a bachelor degree. I could actually never afford that at a local community college. I have um certifications of ACLS, which is Advanced Cardiac Life Support uh, qualifications on saving people with advanced medicine. I have the BLS, which is the basic life support. I have CPI, which is a self-defense that we have to mandatory take uh, class uh, for behavioral health intensive management. Um, I have a stroke scale certification, and that's for your neurologically compromised patients that come to the ICU. Um, so I have a, a extra certifications, but basically I have been an ICU nurse for 33 years. So there's lots of experience that went along with my certifications. How did you first become interested in nursing as a career? Um, actually, the truth is I never wanted to be a nurse. <laughs> It was mommy dearest who said, you are going to be a nurse. I actually wanted to be a journalist and, you know, eventually, you know, delusions of grandeur wanted to write for the New York times. Uh, but she said, no, you're going to be a nurse. So I became a nurse because you did what your mother said back in the day. I became a nurse, but gravitated from ER to, to ICU. And then I found my true love. I absolutely loved ICU. And um, so, so there was no, oh, I can't wait to be a nurse. That was not me at all. But I grew to love it. And, and ICU became my passion. What was it about ICU that you found so rewarding? 
there was such a intricate religion about ICU watching the body parts organs fall apart and getting that extra sense of this is what we have to do and communicating with other nurses and with the physicians on getting that patient better. It was like a, a you know, a human puzzle that you had to put together um, and you never stopped there. You know, you had 12 to 13 hours a day and I always worked night shift. I told everyone I'm allergic to day shift, but uh, I always worked night shift and you did not have a break. You didn't have 15 minutes. You didn't have 30 minute break. You were going on and on and on forever. And it was, uh, it was very in intense, which is probably why it's called intensive care unit, but we got the sickest of the sick. And I was just mesmerized about how the body worked and how we could get them better, bring them back to life or, or help them to a peaceful dying. But uh, it's just the, the intricacies of the body that just fascinated me, that had me hooked. <laughs> what advice would you give to someone who is considering a career in nursing? Um, my advice is it is a very difficult profession, but the most important thing is you have to stick together camaraderie with fellow nurses. You have to have a good team with the nurses and with the physicians. It's very important. Stay away, you know, from the bully trap. There are nurse bullies out there. I've always, I've been an, a recipient of, of bully nurses and, and it's very degrading and many times management doesn't support you until finally the bullies disappear but the most you know stay as a team work together and you know i've i've known nurses that brag about how much they know the bravado and you know their cup is full but those are the most dangerous nurses because medicine is ongoing. It never, you never stop learning. And the nurses that think they know everything become the most dangerous nurse. So I would say always keep your cup half full um, so you can keep learning. Uh, I stayed away from those that, you know, knew everything because I knew that that was a grandiose thought. So I would definitely say, work together, be a team. And, um, and, and, you know, I always said your very worst shift can be your very best if you have a good team together. Tell me three things that you wish the public knew about your job. <laughs> well, I wish they would know that we are not that typical, stereotypical handmaidens with the low cleavage and the mini skirts. That is not, that is not who we are. We are college professional nurses with incredible education and uh, our instructions and the time we put into our profession in nursing is incredible. I mean, the complexities of nursing is beyond what anyone would ever know. We're not just there to hold your hand. We're not just there to give you a bed bath. I mean, an intensive care unit, you are helping intubate patients, putting them on a ventilator, helping with central line insertion and chest tubes. And I mean, it is absolutely endless what we do. Even in the emergency department, 
endless. And they get the smorgasbord of whatever in the emergency room. Uh, but, but we are hard workers and we're dedicated. The majority of us are dedicated hard workers that are professionally educated with college degrees. Um, you know, I, I had a, a housekeeper one time say to me, oh, you work nights, night, nighttime. So that means all your patients are sound asleep. It's like, no, not at all. They are not sound asleep ever, ever, ever. If they are, well, that would be nice, but that doesn't happen. And that's, that's just a general public person who they know nothing about what we do, you know, and, and I would say probably the hardest moment in the life of nursing probably probably came through COVID when at first there were not enough PPEs, which is, you know, your personal protection mask. And I mean, even nurses were dying left and right because we didn't have enough physical protection from, from all of that. And the vaccine hadn't been developed yet. And they were doubling our assignments and uh, nurses were hitting the road, experienced nurses to become travelers and bare bones. It was a quite traumatic time for the nursing profession, for all of America. So if anything, I would love for the public to respect us, to respect the fact that we know what we're doing and we are educated and we know what we're talking about. That, that would be my bottom line. What are some of the most common misconceptions about nursing, do you think? I, I think some people think that, you know, we are here to serve, honor, and obey physicians. We are here to work with physicians. We are 24-7 with patients. We are the doctor's voice. Um, you know, yes, we have to collaborate. And we have to form a camaraderie with the physicians, but we have to work hand in hand. We are not simply robots to listen to their every, because I've had physicians who make very bad decisions and I know they have. I mean, I've had physicians that potentially could have killed a patient if I didn't intervene, if I didn't go up the chain of command, but we do have to work together. And um, so, so, so the biggest misconception is we're just the handmaiden to a physician that we have no uh, say so, which is not true. And I do think that physicians now going to med school are definitely being taught that you should respect your fellow nurse. We can teach you a whole lot. <laughs> we can work with you. But the ones that do come along that are grandiose and, you know, above all things, they, they tend to make some very grave errors, which is the same as the nurse who thinks she knows it all. But, but yeah, we're, we're not the handmaidens for physicians. We are, we are their co-partner in, in helping out patients. Can you describe for me a typical day for a professional hospital nurse? Well, in intensive care unit, it's usually a 7A to 7P shift. So that's 12 hours or 7PM to 7A shift. Like I said, we, our typical ratio was two patients to one nurse. 
So those two patients were quite critical and intensive care unit is usually the sickest of the sick of the patients that come to us usually through the emergency department. And every day it's, you know, you have a patient on a ventilator, you have to deal with their ventilator, you have to do their lab work, which is frequent, your vital signs are continuous every 15 minutes or more, you're hanging vasopressor drifts, you're hanging drips for IV drips for low blood pressures and high blood pressures and cardiac arrest patients, you are constantly on the alert for, for calling a code blue, which is having to do CPR and shocking defibrillating patients. I mean, it's a constant 24-7 crisis intervention for the critical care nurses. Um, now that I'm in behavioral health, like I said, it was apples and oranges, the two different professions, but we get intense patients that are schizophrenic, psychotics, you might have a good day, or they might randomly assault you, and um, it can be very, very dangerous unit, so um, I, I went to go to behavioral health thinking it might be easier, but I was... Uh, ill-informed <laughs> but uh we, we we go for 12 hours straight and there there is minimally a break in between i mean we are we are strong for 12 hours straight and and of course you leave exhausted uh and you know i i hit the pillow and i go into a straight coma <laughs> so it's it's a hard job it's it's a continuous monitoring and applying everything that needs to be done for that critical care patient with such a demanding role and, and such long hours, how do you handle workplace stress? Uh, that's, that's a good one. You know, I think the biggest stress is the nurse bullies that migrate from one hospital to, to the next. And I've written about them also. And usually they do have uh, their personality, they, they have a low self-esteem. It makes them feel better to put other nurses down. They want to elevate themselves and they're brutal. And, and unfortunately, uh, that is a part of nursing. Uh, they eventually migrate to another hospital to start all over, but, but that tends to interfere with patient care also. Um, because then you don't have that camaraderie of helping each other out. As far as dealing with that stress, you know, I think part of my therapy sessions are writing in my blog. I think that has certainly helped with my stress. Um, we always, we, we have a chaplain we can talk to. We also have EAP, which is an employee um, it, it's a free employee service for counseling and therapy sessions, and we and it's totally confidential. And then, of course, there's always the choice of going to your manager. Some managers support you, and they have a rule of getting rid of the bully nurses, or or they don't support you, and they're part of the bully system. So that's another stress is finding the right manager. And truly, in my 30 plus years of nursing, I've probably had three really good managers, which is really sad because they're the ones that you look up to. But, uh, you know, you just have to find your own outlet, whether it's, you know, riding your bicycle or doing something afterwards with yourself, get, getting dogs as your therapy dogs, uh, like I do. You just have to find your own outlet and, and find the good people that you can trust, uh, that you work with. I think that's very important. 
what happens when there is disagreement between a nurse and a doctor about the diagnosis or treatment of a patient? I, I know that's a very broad question. So you might want to contextualize it and say, well, maybe the the nurse has discovered something that the doctor might not have been aware of and believes it's it's important to reassess the situation. So provide whatever whatever context you like for okay. that question. But I'm just keen to understand if there's any formal procedures or, or unspoken professional guidelines about how people do this. Um, t- typically, if you feel like a physician is not interacting appropriately with a patient, um, you can go up the chain of command. You would go over him and go to the top physician on call. And I actually had that experience, particularly, which I considered inhumane. We have some, some of our critical care units have virtual doctors. There's a television there in the room that you plug in and they're 24 seven. That's when a real physical doctor can't be there. And my situation was I had a female lady in her late seventies dying from COPD. Uh, She had a pulmonary disease. She was a do not resuscitate. She was awake and alert, but she was gasping for air and it just broke my heart and typically any ICU nurse will know that even a little bit of morphine will help relax her and help her breathing so I asked the virtual doctor for morphine for this patient and he said no she might become addicted which is absolutely ridiculous she's a do not resuscitate she's dying from end-stage COPD I'm just asking for some relief. I'm asking for two milligrams, which is nothing. So I went up the ladder and I went to the doctor, the head doctor on call to to ask him to supersede this doctor. And um, he talked to the doctor. He got back with me and he said, no, we're not going to give this lady any morphine because she might become addicted. And um, and by the way, I've written a story of him also. (laughs) Because to me, it was not only gross negligence, it was uh, inhumane. So she ended up just gasping until she died. Um, I, I just couldn't bear that anymore. I did. Uh, he did end up getting a formal complaint registered to him, which I initiated. I don't, you know, typically a doctor's hands might be slapped, unlike a nurse would usually get fired or majorly reprimanded but um it was inhumane what he did so so yes we can go up the ladder sometimes that works sometimes it doesn't and for her it did not work and um and she ended up dying gasping and that's all I was asking for was some type of relief while she died so it was very sad and very inhumane but they do make mistakes I usually have worked with very good competent uh intensivists in the ICU the majority I would say are very good. Yeah, I understand there is, um, at least professionally, there's supposed to be a collaborative relationship between doctors and nurses, as opposed to the, you know, the maybe the public misconception that the nurses are the, the foot soldiers there for the, for the right. doctors to order around. Um, mm-hmm. Nurses are themselves healthcare professionals, very mm-hmm. well qualified some of them in the in the fields of specialization might actually know more about a situation than than a doctor who might be you know non-specialist or, or general um 
so nurses do deserve respect and credibility for for the knowledge and experience that they have and mm -hmm. ideally you know health professionals should be working together and and right. putting their minds together to to determine the best possible outcome for for the patient but as you say that that doesn't always happen let's move on to vaccination what is your experience of vaccine hesitancy and is it a problem where you live uh it was a big problem down south in you know the sh the north carolina south carolina i'm sure alabama mississippi you know we have our rights the hoax even even with fellow nurses which would just absolutely was incredible that they were refusing vaccinations. Now, hospitals across the USA were terminating nurses that refused the vaccination, except um, if they had a physical doctor's order because they physically could not take the vaccination. I totally understood that. But many nurses were being able to not take the vaccination for religious reasons, which our hospitals um, approved of. These are, these are folks who, uh, in my opinion, in my humble opinion, made that up. These are people who never go to church. They totally made this up, but the hospital had to honor that to not have fears of repercussions of discrimination, et cetera. So, so I'm working right beside a nurse who's not vaccinated. Of course, we always had to wear our mask and goggles, no matter what. But, but to me, that not only became a trust issue with my fellow nurses, like who's vaccinated and who's not, but also the fact that they potentially could be uh, giving their coronavirus to fellow patients. So I never comprehended why nurses wouldn't get vaccinated. So there, there was a, a percentage that, that helped uh, infiltrate the hospital with COVID because of their so-called religious reasons, which, which I would love to abolish because I think a lot of it is BS. I mean, and I'm not trying to offend anyone, but the truth is uh, the religious reasons was just a cop out not to get it until some of them did get COVID, you know, and then they wouldn't confess that they, you know, got the vaccination. One nurse said to me, I got COVID, no big deal. It's like, okay, so you're young with no comorbidities. Good for you, you know, but um, we did have pushback. And like I said, many nurses are protected by the religious reasons, which, like I said, I, I don't don't agree with. So I'm a Christian and I know for a fact there is no Christian church on this planet that has an official position against vaccination. In fact, there's no major religion that has an official position against vaccination. So for people who, for personal reasons, don't want to get the vaccine and then just arbitrarily claim that it's, uh, you know, some kind of uh, religious dictate, that to me is just the, the height of, right. of cynical manipulation. That is just right. taking advantage right. of, of a loophole. And I just have no respect for that whatsoever, especially mm -hmm. if, as you say, there's never been any indication that they were religious in, in the first place. Right. And that is a tactic that anti-vaxxers have tried here in Australia as well, uh, but mm -hmm. it, it hasn't actually been successful. It's a different situation over here. So how do you think medical professionals should address 
vaccine hesitancy in their patients. What are some strategies perhaps that you can recommend? You know, that's a hard one to handle. And um, we can talk till we're blue in the face. We can bang our heads against a brick wall and give them the advantages of getting vaccination versus the horrors involved of getting sick from COVID. And your ultimate would be in the intensive care unit. And then the real ultimate would be dying. And no matter what tactic we use for those patients, they're convinced they're just not going to do it. They refuse. And so it, you, sometimes it's personal experience, like, oh, my, my niece or my nephew or my uncle died because they didn't get the COVID vaccine. And that is their re- reason for getting it, uh, or, or I'm sorry, for getting it. Um, even I had a, a woman who was a friend of mine, pregnant, and she got COVID and she was on the ventilator and she also got a trach, which is you've been on the ventilator too long and she was still actively pregnant. They almost lost her. And then she came out, you know, and, and I am Christian also, but she came out saying it was God that cured me. It's like you were in the hospital on the ventilator on every possible IV drip to keep you alive you're fortunate you made it through, but you almost didn't. You almost left a baby without a mom and you're bragging about it. You know, and I have no problem giving God credit, but give the medical professionals credit also. And the vaccine, you know, to me, she was tooting her horn saying that it was God that protected me. And I hear that a lot too, that God gave me a natural immune system. Well, he did up to a point, but that's why we create vaccines. That's why you don't have polio. That's why you're not crippled from polio. That's, you know, that's why you don't have all these other diseases from back in the day because you were vaccinated. So, um, yeah, I've, I've tried hard to educate patients. Some of them just don't budge. And then I really just give up. There's just nothing more I can do. Yeah, it always irritates me when anti-vaxxers say, oh, I'm relying on my immune system. Well, more than 900,000 Americans right. have died f- from this disease. Right. And they all had immune systems. So, right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> That's so really where was not God then? I give it. Right. Yeah. If you were in charge of your state health department, what changes would you make to improve the situation of nurses? Oh, boy. I. I always wanted to be a revolutionist, (laughs) but I knew that I would be fired with my voice. Um, I would love to, for the health departments and even the nursing profession, state board of nursing to take a big stand to protect us. Like you said, some type of union nationally to protect us and to support us and to empower us. And I still haven't seen it. I I mean, I would want something almost in a dictatorship form to assist us nurses, to empower us. I haven't seen it. It's, you know, I'm, I'm so, if you talk about the comorbidities of nursing, it is endless. I'm surprised I survived this long, but I did. But you have to learn kind of when to open your mouth and when not to. But I would love for, you know, health departments and, and national organizations to, to help us 
to support us, to help the nurse-patient ratio, um, which is really important, you know, um, and, and even the hours. I mean, they even came up with mandatory. I have mandatory weekends that I have to work. No way out. You know, there's, they have such a stronghold on nurses that we don't really have a lot of power. And, and that's when I saw the travel nurses take off and leave the vacuum with Rick. I thought there would be some type of power we would obtain within each hospital, but I didn't see that at all. That, you know, I, I just didn't see the empowerment at all. So it's kind of a sad situation. I, I don't know what it's going to take for nurses to take over and, you know, take over the universe, <laughs> which we should. <laughs> The working hours are something that always concerns me, and it's it's nurses and ambulance workers, emergency care workers, and, and of course, doctors in hospitals as well. The hours that people are being pushed to cover mm-hmm. are just astonishingly high, and I can't understand why more isn't done by the hospitals themselves to try and address that, because surely... A, an employee who's been working for an extraordinary amount of time is more prone to error, is more prone to fatigue, um, is not performing up their best. Can't they at least do little micro rosters where maybe you have four hours on and one hour off? Um, right. Or at the very least, yeah. four hours on some kind of typical active duty and then maybe one hour helping in administration or something so that you're on light duties so that you it's not so intense uh it seems to me that these these hours are just asking for trouble stretching your uh, your staff to the to the breaking point and just hoping that they won't crack at an inconvenient time it, um i would have thought that in the healthcare pres- profession of all things you would want everyone performing at peak capacity rather than saying oh well we'll just keep pushing them and and um hope they collapse at the end of their shift and and not at some point in the middle of it right and um I, I agree. 12 hours is a long time because it's not always 12 hours and then it's 13 hours because you're obligated to make sure you document everything that happened also uh, in, in, on top of taking care of your patient the entire time. And that, like I said, minimally, there, there's not a 15-minute break or a 30-minute break within the 12 hours. I know in Charlotte, North Carolina, one of the major hospitals, there was a class action lawsuit uh, uh, against the hospital because nurses were not able to take breaks. And it was the trauma, uh, the trauma ICU, surgical trauma ICU that I worked with that started the class action lawsuit because as they took a break, they would be interrupted with your patient's crashing. You need to hang Levifed. We got to start a code. You need to hang vasopress and these special drips to keeping patients alive. So they never got a break. And, you know, and I'm talking 12 hours grueling of critical care nursing. And so the class action lawsuit is now it was the, the nurses were compensated for never taking a break, financially compensated. And it became their rule that you had to have a 30 minute break. And um, 
and, and they made sure the charge nurses had to make sure that you got a break no matter what. So that, that was the sad part is that they had to create a class action lawsuit to do that. But many hospitals, many throughout the USA simply just don't care. And, and even on your days off, they will badger you. Can you work? Can you work? Can you work? I mean, sometimes you just have to put your phone on silence because it's like I did my 312s. Goodbye. As we say in America, goodbye, Felicia. <laughs> so, um, yeah, we don't have a whole lot of support. And, and it is difficult when you when your brain is, uh, you know, on on call for those 12 hours, you can get fatigue and you can make mistakes, which is why we're supposed to have a system of checking with another nurse when you're giving medications uh, before you hang them. You know, that's supposed to happen. But sometimes everyone's so much in a hurry and they're short staffed that that stuff is missed. So you just have to, you know, I have to say my prayers before I go in <laughs> to protect me and to protect the patient. So at the end of your shift, I, I imagine another nurse comes in and ideally there's a little bit of overlap and there's a handover process, I assume. Where yeah, you... we have we have an end of shift report for the new nurses coming in during the day. And so we report on our patients everything that's going on, everything that needs to be done for the day, like this patient will need an EKG today. Um, this patient will need a CAT scan, um, obviously not emergent because we would have done it on night shift, but we give them a full report on each of their patients for the day and then they take over. So um, that it's a handoff assignment and, and the charge nurse, which I do charge also, you know, we make the assignment for the day shift and we tell the night shift nurses, this is who you have to give report to in the morning. And so it's a steady handoff that we give our patients to the next shift. But what happens when the replacing nurse doesn't arrive on time or maybe doesn't arrive at, at all, or, or you've been told they're on the way, you've been given no ETA, you don't know how long it's going to take to get there. What are your responsibilities and obligations in, in that situation? Well, either we have to stay until they arrive or a charge nurse uh, or an assistant nurse manager. Assistant nurse managers are typically out of any patient assignment. They will have to take over. So there's always someone taking over, no matter what, even if it's, and I've had to stay over until someone arrived. I mean, you know, there's always gonna be a, a car accident on the highway, you know, that's to be expected. So we do cover no matter what, no matter if it's the nurse on night shift, she'll stay over or the charge nurse or the assistant nurse manager, someone will take a hold of that patient. But there are, there are definitely no shows and, you know, I'm not supposed to be there today. We hear that frequently. <laughs> so. What are your views on the healthcare model debate because this, this is a, a big debate which has been raging in America for quite a few years and obviously got kicked up into another gear when Obamacare came along. Now, interesting thing about Obamacare, in Australia and just about every other Western country, it would not have been accepted. It would have been seen as, as a laughably bad proposal, not because it went as far as it did, but because it would be seen as not going far enough. In Australia, for example, it was widely seen as just a, a concession to privatized healthcare and didn't actually do much to 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 address the actual problems. It rather tinkered at the edges and addressed 
the symptoms of, of the problem. Nevertheless, I understand that from an American perspective, it was still a huge step up from where people were. So it did have a massive benefit for a large number of people. What are your views on, on, this, on this issue, on, on the healthcare model debate? And what has been your experience of any changes that uh, resulted from Obamacare? Um, I am all in favor of a universal healthcare system in the USA. I cannot comprehend why people knock it down. I really don't understand that. I would love to see universal. I, I've always been a pro and advocate for that. Um, one thing comes to mind is when you privatize different um, health insurance agencies, Blue Cross, Blue Shield. I mean, there's, there's hundreds of them. To me, it's, there's money. There's money in those companies making. There's, there's multimillionaires making. So to me, part of it is greed with the companies offering it to you. The, the other part may be that population that's saying, it's my right to pick and choose. There's just such an incredible, and this is my opinion, incredible amount of ignorance in our country. It's, it's very sad to me. Um, you know, if you went universal health care, we would all be treated and we wouldn't have to, you know, I, I will tell you my experience because I'm getting ready to retire from nursing and I'm 66. So now I'm a candidate for Medicare and oh my gosh, the loopholes, the red tape involved, because I've always been with a hospital and they've always had their insurance company, which was pretty easy to handle. Um, but the loopholes in Medicare has been astounding. And I don't comprehend how people even navigate through that, but I'm, I'm getting through the muddy waters. But as far as Obamacare, it was almost like a welcome relief that finally people are gonna be able, but like you said, it was condemned by some countries because it just wasn't enough. But for us, it was at least a, a, a bit of breadcrumbs thrown our way to get started. And if you'll remember, Hillary Clinton attempted and she was blocked down immediately. Um, so I'm all in favor of it. But, you know, people will call me liberal and which I am. I'm, I'm not afraid to say that, but I am liberal for the betterment of our society. You know, um, I, I want to see our society healthy and, and coming in for the, the, the compliments of what a national health care plan would do for all of us. So I can't comprehend why we're against it. I know there is that greed area with the companies, the healthcare companies versus I have my rights, you know, that, that thing. But, you know, if you're a poor person, uh, and you're very poor, then Medicaid can help you. But you have to be very poor. Like you can't own a house. You don't have much of a savings account, if any. Um, so, so there's such a fine line between it. But I totally support a national healthcare system. But I don't know that I will see it in my lifetime, unfortunately. We have tremendous freedom here, even with our, our market system, our, our, our private system. And in the public system, we've got freedom as well. I can go to any public doctor around the place, or I can go to a private doctor if I feel like it. I can choose my own doctor. I can mm -hmm. sign up to my local healthcare clinic, which I, which I have done, and I can see them regularly. I can also sign up to any other clinics in, in my area and see them when I like as well. But there's no restriction on which doctors I can see. 
I don't have to ask which medications are covered because I know, I know they will be. I know that the medications are massively subsidized again by the government through what's called the pharmaceutical benefits scheme. So I know I'll never pay any more than mm. oh, what's the maximum price cap. Maximum price cap for most prescription medication in Australia is about $42.50. And most Australians do not pay that. They pay a lot less. I typically pay around $17.50, between $11 and $17.54 for the medications I have to take. Uh, Incredible. <laughs> no, no one is paying thousands of dollars for insulin. Insulin is, is you know, super cheap. Now, it seems to me that a lot of the arguments against universal health care collapse when you see that they they don't actually apply in countries that have universal health care for example oh if they brought in universal health care it would kill off the private sector well it hasn't killed right. off the private sector in in australia with absolutely thriving and in other countries yeah. as well oh you won't be able to choose who you go to and who you see but you can we can choose this oh you won't be able to you know you'll be you'll be restricted to a certain healthcare clinic or, or whatever you'll be told where you have to go no, I can go anywhere. Uh, it, there's no, no restriction on, on the, oh, they'll, um, they'll outlaw private health insurance. Not at all. They need health, private health insurance to, you know, to take up the slack and, and to keep the market working and also to keep the, the public system competitive as well. So none of these standard arguments really stack up. Once you see universal health care in practice, a lot of these, these silly arguments just fall by the wayside because they're not even vaguely based on reality. Or, or this idea that taxes will suddenly massively shoot up. Well, that hasn't happened in Australia either. We pay a, an, an annual levy, which is like a um, 1.5 to 2.5% um, levy on your taxable income, depending on, and it's on a sliding scale, depending on which, you know, how much income you're getting. So say between, you know, 60 and 150,000 and up and that kind of thing. So the maximum you'll pay is a, a levy of about 2.5% of your, of your taxable income. Uh, mm -hmm. And for most people, it's, it's 1.5 or, or 2%. And if you're in the super high bracket, you'll pay a little extra, which is like another mm -hmm. one or one or 0.5%. That's for people who are earning, you know, about 200,000 or whatever. And they're not going to notice that. And if you're earning under a certain threshold, you don't pay at all. So, mm -hmm. I just right. don't see where these, these massive tax rises are supposed to be coming from. Because again, we haven't seen that in, in this country. And that's with the government massively subsidizing our, our pharmaceuticals as well. So yeah, all of these standard myths just, are, are just quite baffling to me because they're, they're not my experience as someone who lives in Australia. And I also spent about six years in, in the UK, which also has a, an excellent national right. universal healthcare system. And none of these myths actually pan out when you when you go to countries that actually have these systems. So it, it seems bizarre to me. How do you think the average American views the state of healthcare in other Western countries? Uh, you know, we hear information, um, which, which I think a lot of what's going on in America is misinformation of the of a national healthcare coverage. 
but you know, we, we've heard stories in Canada, you have to wait in line to have a cardiac cath because it's national insurance in, in Canada. So you have to wait in line for the heart catheterization and then you may not make it. So you hear horror stories and you don't hear the pros about it, but that's the misinformation that gets carried on. And people love to cling on to misinformation in the USA. I, I can't comprehend. I, I just think we have this massive amount of ignorance in our USA, which is sad because I didn't think it used to be that way. But um, it is now, and uh, I, like I said, I would totally look forward to having a national insurance takeover. Um, and you know, what I was saying previously, I do think there that it's generated by a lot of greed with the insurance companies. There's definitely big bucks in there. So most of it was negativity and misinformation, and little tidbits of information. Like I said, the cardiac cap was just one example, but. I don't comprehend it. What is one takeaway that you would like the audience to to take with them from this interview and from your experiences as a nurse? If there's if there's one thing that they've remembered about you, your experiences and about your your work, what would you hope that that would be? Um, that's a really good question, and it's a pretty difficult question, I think, because. I want people to know that I am here to support them. I am here to tell you the truth. I am here to give you reality. And people don't always like reality. You know, I tell people, look in the mirror, see what's going on, and then be proactive for yourself. Uh, you know, I even write about domestic violence, domestic abuse. It doesn't have to be physical abuse. It can also be verbal abuse, which I had been a recipient of. And it's a very slow, sad trickle to your brain and your life. So look in, your, look in the mirror, be an advocate for yourself and for others and listen to the truth you know you need to stamp out all the misconceptions and the misinformation going on and um and, you know listen to science also science is very important you have real researchers who are PhDs and their physicians and their chemists and they work with these vaccines and they work with medical uh, advances going on. Listen to them. They are not, their support system is not through social media, you know, which I tell people, get off of my social media site if you're not an advocate for health, if you're going to give me all of these fake uh, remedies that do not work, you know, go somewhere else. But uh, unfortunately, people love to hang on to that. So I, I'd like them to see me as uh, being an advocate for being proactive for yourself, telling the truth and, and wanting people to make themselves a better person and have a better life. That is a, a really wonderful message. Thank you so much for joining me today, Debbie. It's been an absolute pleasure. And I know you work online. You've got some, you've got a, a blog and a Facebook page. I will put the links to that in the link on the podcast so people can go straight there as well. Thank you very much again. And thank you so much. It was a pleasure.